was driving down the road, and as you do, you pay attention to your car because um, paying attention to your car generally means that it's whatever is wrong is cheaper to fix when you catch it early. So they tell me, I don't know, I don't know much about cars, but I hear my brakes making a whistling sound, and that tells me one thing, it's, it's that thing that the mechanic told me uh, a few months ago, said, yeah, you can do your front brakes now, but your back brakes are going to need to be done soon. See, cars are helpful like that. They put little things in there to tell us that things are wrong. If it makes a grinding sound, that's wrong. Cars shouldn't make grinding sounds. How is your prayer life? Would you know if it was going okay? Would you know if there was something wrong? Is there something that gives you kind of that audible warning or that that signal that things may not be going as well as they could be? This summer we're going to look at we're going to look at the Psalms and learn how to practice prayer with them. It's, it's like uh, one um, church father said, the Psalms are the gymnasium of the soul. Now, we think of gymnasiums and we think of uh, places where you would go and you would work out. And uh, whether you have uh, used machines or you take a class or you work with a trainer, there's someone there that's helping you do what you wouldn't ordinarily do in order to strengthen parts of your body that may need strengthening, right? So the Psalms work in the same way. The Psalms help us to, to work out parts of our body that may be weak or may be, uh, may be atrophied. But see, to say that we're going to think about prayer is to say that we're going to, is, is akin to saying we're going to think about food, right? There's, just as there's so many uh, different types of food that a healthy diet calls for, a healthy life of prayer calls for an entire variety of prayers. John Calvin, in his commentary, on the psalm said this, he said, what various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury. It were difficult to describe. I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. If you read through all 150 Psalms that we have in our Bible, you will find before you a mirror that shows you all parts of your life from praise and adoration to lament to longing, even Psalms that would call down God's curses upon our enemies. The Psalms are an anatomy to the soul. And so this summer, we're going to take time to gather around them and say, how would this function like a trainer for us, like a a workout partner for us? How would this stretch us and cause us to, to say, wow, this is where I'm really weak? Not to condemn us, but to strengthen us and to help us. 
Calvin goes on and he said, the psalmists lay open their inmost thoughts and affections and rather draw each of us to the examination of ourselves in particular in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and of the many vices with which we abound may be concealed. What's Calvin saying? He's saying that when you honestly lay yourself before the Psalms, it exposes all the things in your heart, all the things that can, um, that can command our affections and our attention and lays them bare. It's given to us so that we would love and adore and see Jesus. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And in the model prayer he gave, it began saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus began in teaching his disciples to pray, not first with words of petition, but with adoration, with worship. Jesus taught his disciples something incredibly profound. And I want us to see in Psalm 95 this morning. Psalm 95 has been used um, by the church throughout the millennia as pretty much the blueprint of worship. It's called the Venite because in the beginning it says, O come, O come. So this morning, I want you to think about three things. and we, It outlines really um, pretty clearly. We're called first to rejoice in the king in verses 1 through 5. We're called to have reverence towards the king in verses 6 and part of 7. And then we're called in the remainder of 7 to the end of the psalm to respond to the king. So first rejoice, second reverence, third response. When you look at verses 1 through 5, it is a summons. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Verses 1 and 2 calls us to come and bring our everything, our utmost before the Lord. It is the unashamed enthusiasm befitting our refuge and our rescuer. And you'll notice also that it's not just a vertical call. It's not just um, a summons, but it's a summons um, of the people gathering one another together. Oh, come, let us. It's not personal and private instructions. It is a, it is a corporate summons. It is a, a communal summons, one to the other, for us to come together and sing. Now, look, there are other ways, and we will make room, and we will talk about over the summer how there are um, myriads of ways that we can come in right and reverent and appropriate ways before God in prayer, both communally and personally. However, the witness of the scriptures over and over and over again is that the best way, 
um, the most full-throated way for us to come before the Lord is with loud shout, with loud song, with loud singing. Even if you're not a singer, even if you couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, that's why it says noise and not beautiful melody. One guy told me one time that he sings solo. I said, really? He said, yes, yeah, solo, you can't hear me. It's a music joke. It's been around forever. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it will not happen again, except maybe for this one. A guy came up to me and said, I sing tenor. I said, really? He said, yeah, 10 or 12 feet away. We're done now. That's <laughs> no more of that. Seriously, sometimes reverent silence is the appropriate way to come before the Lord, right? In Psalm 62 and 65, sometimes reverent silence is all we can do. Sometimes tears are the right way to come before the Lord, as in Psalm 56, verse 8. But beloved, here's the thing, and I'm going I'm to get to what I think is the cause in a minute of why many of us struggle to bring this full-throated, hallelujah, this full-throated song of praise to God. Because it is a struggle. But we'll talk about that in a minute. He gives us why. He tells us why this summons, why this call to come and bring our best, to bring our brash and loud and uproarious song before the Lord. Why? Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The psalmist is declaring something incredibly important. He said, we are, we are to ascribe to God all that he is worth. And one of the ways that we can do this is to recount his deeds. Right? Look at what he does. He's just said in verse 3, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And then in verse 4 and following, he tells us what he's done. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now look, for us, this is like, well, okay, he's God. That's fine. But think about it. For people in the day of the psalm, they were ones who ascribed there was a God for every part of the earth, right? The mountains had their own God. The sea had its own God. The dry land had its own God. And the psalmist here is saying, no, there is one God. He formed all of these things. They all belong to him. Did you ever wonder why in Revelation, when you read that the sea will be no more, why that is? Because in the ancient Near East, the sea was a place of uncertainty and chaos and death and destruction. And so for it to say the sea will be no more doesn't mean there's not going to be beautiful oceans in the new heavens and the new earth. It means that all that is chaos will be no more. And look what the psalmist says. By God being the one who formed the sea, he controls the sea. God is the one who is over the chaos. It's not chaos at all. It's his. 
the English word that we had that we have for worship um, comes as a derivative of the Old English word, which is worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship. To worship something in the derivative of the word is to ascribe to it its worth. As one author put it, worship is to see God as worthy and to give him what he's worth. Not only does the psalm uh, remind us of the majesty of God, um, but it brings us to a point of mystery as well. That though that through the immensity of the world and all that is in it, the Bible also reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Even all of the majesty and all of the wonder and all of the depth of beauty of the world, even in that, the psalm says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the morn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will find me. There's nowhere we can go because there's nothing that can separate us from God. To speak of what all of what God has done, is doing, and will yet one day do is the only way to radically, radically reorient your life. It's to, to see God as the only one of supreme worth, acknowledge that worth, and then live in light of that worth. So why, though? Why should we consciously, as a discipline, regularly engage in the worship of God in prayer? Whether it's privately and devotionally or communally and corporately, why is it that this is such a vital discipline for our lives? It is not because, beloved, that we are lazy and forget to worship. That's not why I'm saying this. It is not that we are lazy and forget to worship. We worship all the time. It is not that we are, um, we, it's not that we are forgetting to worship. The problem is that we are forgetful worshipers. What do I mean by that? All of us. All of us are ascribing worth to things all the time. All of us are extolling the value of someone or something all the time. And that someone or something may be changing. It may be different every day. But our hearts are always, always going to be worshiping. The question is, what is it worshiping? Not is it, but what? What is our hearts worshiping? The act of ascribing all of the things to God that God has done is both a retelling of the story, but also a redirecting of our affections. God, you did these things. You are the one that formed all the things. You are the center of the universe. And if you're the center of the universe, 
if you're the king and there's no one else like you, if you are God and there is no one else beside you, that means I'm not. The problem is not that we're forgetting to worship, it's that we're forgetful worshipers. Because we ascribe value to things, we just ascribe the wrong value to the wrong things. Do you understand what I'm saying? You did these things, God. My job didn't do these things for me. This reorientation of our hearts is, one, telling ourselves true things, and two, exposing false things that I'm believing and saying subtly to myself. Do you, wonder, do you ever wonder why your prayer life feels like your prayers aren't even getting out of your mouth? Is it possible? Is it possible that you have uh, fallen into the trap that I have fallen into so many times? Where I'm like, I don't even have the energy to worship. I stopped keeping prayer journals for a season because here's how it would go. Buy a new journal. Right on the cover, David's prayer journal. Page one. Dear God, please bless my new prayer journal and help me not be a forgetful prayer like I was last year. Fast forward 364 days. Well, it says 1999, can't use that prayer journal anymore, have to buy a new one. A lot of times the reasons that our prayer feels so ineffectual is because we're so wrapped up in what we need and what we want, we can't even begin to get out of our own heads to ascribe to God the glory of what he has done, is doing, and yet will one day do. We've ascribed worth and worship to the wrong things. Every time we gather together in corporate worship, every time we bow in private prayer and devotion and worship, what are we doing? We are, we are hearing good news. We are putting before our hearts the one God that is of supreme worth and value and prayerfully in those moments at least relinquishing the things that have held such incredible sway over us. And it ought to lead to a response. And this is what the psalmist says. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Recounting what God has done. Ascribing the things that make him the one of supreme worth versus the wants and the wishes and the whims of my own heart induces a response. It is that we are to get low before him. One thing that we see is this act of a submission of heart. Let us bow down. What does that mean? 
To bow down is to acknowledge something supreme. It is an act of contrition. It is an act of humility. It is an act of submission. So, there's a willingness to say that you are God and I am not and I submit myself to you. Now, look, um, if, if you were to uh, go before and bow before a great king, uh, if you were entering into the courts of the king, what would you do? You would get down on your knees, right? You would probably clasp your hands. You would bow your head. This is a position of reverence for several reasons. One, you're kneeling. Not a good fighting position. Two, your hands are clasped. Hard to reach for a sword. Three, in bowing your head, you've exposed the nape of your neck. If the attendant to the king finds anything that you say to be displeasurable, to get low, to bow down, is a, there's a vulnerability. There's an exposing yourself. There's a saying that you are God and I am not. I'm not going to fight you on this. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to try and assert my will. So let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Let us acknowledge, let us submit that he is God and I am not. He is God and you are not. And that the world is a much happier place when things are in their proper order. Right? Ever tried to put something together, like from Ikea, let's say? And you have parts and you have instructions and you say, we don't need no stinking instructions. Then you need marriage counseling and then it's a whole thing. The wisdom of the Bible is one that leads to a happy life. And if you go against, the, if you go against what God has revealed in his word, you do so at your own peril. And it's not to say like, you're, you're, you're risking eternal damnation, though if you're not in Jesus, you are. But if you're a Christian and you go and you live your life in a way that is contrary to what the, what the scriptures say, you do so at your own peril. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just telling you that's not the way the world works. So there's not only an acknowledgement with our minds of who God is and what he's done, but there's also an acknowledgement within our hearts as well. There's submission within our own hearts. There is submission to the Lord, the one who is the king, the sovereign, the one who has the might and the right to work uh, and rule over the world and order the world. But look what else we're told. Not only is he the sovereign and the great king over the world, for he is our God, verse 7, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is not some, as we heard in the, in, uh, the, the series of the I Ams with Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. God has not farmed out the care of his people to some hireling. He has invested personally and he has drawn us in personally. We don't bow before him so that he can crush us. We bow before him because we are his and he cares for us. He's personally involved in our lives. The the marvel and the joy and the delight of all of this is that such a great king has pledged himself to his people. 
He is the one who has pledged his faithfulness to us, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever, covenant, faithful love to us. And so our act of submission is not a question of whether we'll regret it, but quite to the contrary, it is the lack of submission that we would regret. It is the lack of submission that we would, that we would loathe because it is the lack of submission that will lead us ultimately into distress. So moms and dads, let me ask you this. When you ask your child, or if you don't have kids, if you've uh, asked a friend, did you hear me? Let me ask you something. Friend to friend. Are you asking them simply, did they hear you? Or more to the point, are you asking them, are you going to respond to what I said? Like when I ask my kids, did you hear me? And they're in the room next to me. I know they heard me. I'm not giving them a hearing test. I'm giving them a response test. Look what the psalmist says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now, this is an odd Term. This is an odd tone for the psalm to take. And some of you have heard that language before. You've heard that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because over in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we find this showing up again in Hebrews 3 over into Hebrews 4. The worship of the king requires a response to the king. What are you going to do? Because you have retold all of the gifts and all of the glories and all of the goodness of God, because you have said these things, because you have gotten low and submitted yourself before him, now what are you going to do? And here there's a sober warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. One of the primary acts of worship that we engage in is to listen, right? To listen and hear God's mighty acts told and retold, recounted and enumerated. To listen to the good news of the gospel and hear it silence all of the other false loves and false truths that would find themselves showing up in the world to hear as Zephaniah would say that we would be that we would be quieted with God's love that he would exult over us with singing in order to make sense of the change of voice in the psalm Listen to what these, uh, these lands, the names of these lands meant. Meribah was dispute and Massa was testing. Israel, while on their desert journey, was um, uh, cranky, um, I guess is one way of putting it. Um, um, obstinate, cranky, uh, really awful, um, like, imagine, are we there yet? But hey, at least back at the house, we actually had food. Kind of that whole thing. 
they hardened their hearts towards the Lord. And climactically, this is what cost Moses the ability to enter the promised land of testing God. People refused to take God at his word, and they continually tested him. Verse 9, when your fathers put me to the test and, and, and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For 40 years, God loathed, that's a, that's a word, isn't it? God loathed, um, one translation puts it as God was disgusted with that generation. And said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But see, here's the thing. We know because of the, of the witness of the Old Testament that it was not Moses that took the people into the promised land. But it was Joshua, right? So we know that the people of God were able to enter the rest of God, at least in terms of the land. What Hebrews tells us is there is yet still another rest that God's people ultimately need to go into. What is that rest? That rest is the ransoming, rescuing, redeeming, resurrecting work of the Son of God, rescuing the people of God from the death and dismay that sin had brought into the world that had killed their hearts. There is a rest yet still for the people of God. More than Sabbath, we're being called to the rest that is redemption. The rest of the cross. The rest of the finished work of Christ Jesus on our behalf. This is the urgency of worship. Today, while it is still called today, do not harden your heart. Don't shrink back. You don't, want to, you don't forget to worship. You're a forgetful worshiper. You and I are always looking to what will satisfy us. And if God has not done anything recently to wow us, we grumble just as the Israelites did. We look to him and put him to the test and say, show us why you're worthy of our affection and our attention today. Don't we? I'll answer for myself. I do. If the heart is the source of our thoughts and emotions and our desires and our choices, to harden our hearts is to resist the call of the king and find ourselves instead lured by other cares and other concerns. The psalmist and ultimately the, writers to the, the writer to the Hebrews are both concerned with this question. What are our ultimate concerns? If our ultimate concerns are that God, the King and the Lord, has sent His Son to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserve to die and that we can stake our entire eternity on Christ, it means that if that is our ultimate concern, if that is the ultimate thing that is enlivening our hearts, if that is the ultimate thing that we ascribe worth to, that all the uncertainty and all the sorrow and all the heartache and all the loss and all the shame and all the guilt of the world are real. But they're stripped of their power. To ascribe ultimate worth to God is not to put on blinders to everything bad that's happening in the world. 
And that isn't what the scriptures say we're to do anyway. It just means that all of those things are stripped of their power because if you have the smile of heaven and the affection of the Father through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, then what exactly can this world do to you that would separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And if that's true, and if that's true, then there's nothing else that's worthy of your praise. There's nothing else that's worthy of the attention and the affection of your heart. There's nothing else that becomes an ultimate thing. Because we've been given the glorious hope of the gospel, we can declare God's mighty deeds to our restless, doubting hearts and bow in submission to a rightly ordered world where God is God and we are not. So let me ask you this. I said, how's your prayer life doing? How's your worship life doing? How is your time where you are uh, engaged in private worship and thanking God? Just even if you don't know what to say or what to ask for, just to be thankful for the things that he has done and the glories that he has shown and the creation that he has given and the redemption that he has accomplished. What would it be like for you to just take a few minutes each day and recount the mighty deeds of God? What if you inserted into your day times to reorient your heart away from what you're fearing or longing to be fulfilled and instead reoriented your heart to rejoice in the glories of the gospel? What would it be like to come in here corporately and rather than begrudgingly go through the motions and go, I don't know this song. Why are we singing these words? Don't we know new music? What would it be like for us to come in and for the rafters of this place to shake because of the joyful noise the people of God come and bring? I'm just asking. This is not a setup to another music joke. I'm serious. What would it look like for you, even the ones that can't sing, just to say unabashedly, you are my God and you are my king and I bring you my all? I'm going to tell you, it has a way of reorienting everything about your life. For us to, with a full throat and a glad heart, bring gladness and greatness to the God, the rock of our salvation. As the Bible teaches us how to pray, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, it begins with worship. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed, make your name great. Let's pray. Father, you are greatly to be worshiped and greatly to be praised. And we need your help. When it comes right down to it, things like I don't feel like it, seems small when compared to the immensity of what you have done. But there's grace for us even there. 
So for all of us, whether we've made too little of you or made too much of other things, thank you for the grace that's ours in Jesus. Thank you that the loudness of our singing doesn't equate to the lavishness of your love for us, that you've showered us with every good gift and every good blessing in Jesus, and that you give us all the grace that we need to start over and afresh. We need your help doing that. Thank you. Receive now the gifts that you have uh, so freely given to us, a portion now of which now we bring back to you, your tithes and our offerings, all to the glory and good of this global gospel that you are proclaiming and declaring. In Jesus' name, amen.